Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Roland DeWolk about his new biography of the American businessman and politician Leland Stanford, entitled American Disruptor, The Scandalous Life of Leland Stanford. Roland, welcome to New Books Network. Hey, thank you. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Well, uh, I'm a Californian. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. I've been a reporter, a news reporter, for pretty much my entire adult life, specializing mostly in investigative work. Uh, I was a history uh, major at UC Berkeley, and ever since those days, some many years past now, (laughs) I have to (laughs) say with a laugh, I have long wanted to go back into a serious study of history and be able to write serious history books. But with this very important caveat, I want it to be readable. I do not want to write stuff that people are not going to read. You know, there's that great old Chinese saying that says an unread book has the same value as a sheaf of blank paper. So uh, over the years, I have kind of slowly worked my way uh, towards that goal. Uh, But I've been doing that as I have been reporting all these years. And I have been teaching also at uh, San Francisco State University as a journalism professor, all together at the same time. Now I can devote myself fully to the study of history and to the writing of it. So among your uh, subjects you've written about now is Leland Stanford. What was it that led you to choose him as a subject for your book? Well, as I mentioned, I am a Californian, and uh, my love of history, of course, has led me to many different aspects of history. But among them, very much at the, towards the top of the list is Western American and California history. I was reporting a story at U Stanford University some, I'd say, five, six, maybe eight years or so ago. And I was kind of cooling my heels, waiting for the, uh, the uh, rather infamous Stanford University Publicity Department to respond to questions that they didn't want to answer. And I was thinking... You know, I don't know an awful lot about this very enigmatic character, Leland Stanford, and I'm reasonably well acquainted with California history in general, Western uh, American history to some large extent, and certainly American history. And this guy was a force to be reckoned with by all measures and accounts and by legend, but I really don't know much about him. Why is that? So I began to poke around a little bit more, and the more I poked around, the more I was intrigued. And then finally, I came to this realization, aha, this is why this story has never been fully, really written. It's a scandal. It's a scandal after one after another. This is going to make something uh, a very interesting project for me. Then I needed to think, now, how am I going to get other people interested (laughs) in reading about Leland Stanford? I could just be a wonk and just put this guy out, this enigmatic guy who started university, so what? But it did occur to me, oh, gee, not quite five years ago when we were, my wife and I were overseas and we were uh, having a, a cold beer in a rooftop of a hotel 
uh, getting ready to go home. Uh, we were talking about how wonderful our vacation was, but how much we were looking forward to coming back home, so on and so forth. When an elderly lady came up to us, she heard our American accents, and she said, excuse me, uh, I hear that uh, I hear you're Americans. What part of the States are you from? We said, oh, we're from the Bay Area. And she was very happy to sit down with us. She says, you know, my grandson just got admitted to the best business school in America. And I said, oh, really? Thinking, you know, I already knew the answer to that was. I said, which one is that? And she said, oh, the hot school of business at UC Berkeley, which is a very, very fine school, but it is not the hot school these days. It's not the it school by any stretch of the imagination. So I said, with all due respect, and I'm a Berkeley grad, and I, I love Berkeley, so on and so forth, Stanford's really the hot school right now, and it has been for quite some time. I suspect it's going to stay that way. She said, why is that? Well, Stanford University is the birthplace, the incubator, and the nourisher of the Silicon Valley, which has transformed everything in our lives, politics, economies, culture, uh, talk about disruption. And within the hour, it suddenly occurred to me, there is what we would call in the news business, my news hook. That's what makes Stanford not only historically important, but relevant today. And I began in earnest when I got back home to uh, really research the book. And I soon found out that in point of fact, it was much more meat on that bone than I even had hoped for. And that's how it all got started. I have to say, it, it's, it really is surprising to uh, consider uh, that you know, how little has really been written about Leland Stanford's life in Sonoma when you consider, you know, he is one of the big four. And there's been, of course, you know, uh, tons written about the transcontinental railroads and the railroad industry in American history. And and, and uh, we, we and the big four is a name that you is a is, is a label you come across when you read you know, practically any history of California or the, the late 19th century West. And yeah, and, and Stanford's name is the biggest of four, uh, you know, largely because of his association with this very prominent educational institution. And yet, as you were pointing out, there's there's really not there hasn't been a whole lot written about him. I mean, Collis Huntington, as a counterexample, has has had much more written about him over the course of the past uh, few decades than, than Stanford has. You have nailed it right perfectly, Mark, because Huntington, who a fascinating character of his own Wait, there's no question about that. There have been two biographies written about him, one of which is pretty good uh, by David Lavender, the late David Lavender. Now, I have to say, for a historian, Huntington's a very rich subject, first and foremost, because as semi-literate, I'm not exaggerating, as semi-literate as he was, he was a tremendous correspondent. He wrote letter after letter. He had all sorts of correspondence with many different people. It's a huge trove of primary uh, material, historic material about him that gives somebody some place not only to start, but to really explore. Stanford, on the other hand, almost immediately after, his after he died, his wife, Jenny, her legal name was Jane, but he always referred to her as Jenny, consequently so in the book, and so will I in this conversation. Jenny destroyed all of their correspondence. And this puts a huge hole into it. The other issue here is that, that as I mentioned earlier, Stanford University does a magnificent job, uh, not only as a great university, unqualified, a very important place, the highest educational standards, there's no question in my mind about that. But they have a publicity department that does a magnificent job of only 
allowing some of the very positive things about Stanford uh, to come out. And uh, I was careful not to, well, I don't know, I won't say they sequester or anything like that, but they just ignore anything that might have sort of a dilatorious influence on his reputation. Uh, so there's a couple of uh, putative biographies, most of them are really hagiographies, if you will, about Leland Stanford. But of course, that leaves the door open to somebody like me, who is a, a more reasonable eye, I think, to the situation. So let's take, uh, uh, let's go back to the early years of Leland Stanford's life. What uh, what was his early life like? Where did he come from? And um, what, how did he, what sort of life did he embark upon in in those early decades? He comes from a, a classic American provenance, if you will. His earliest ancestor came to the shores of New England very shortly after the Mayflower, but very quickly after. And he had a great great grandfather who fought in the uh, Revolutionary War. But very shortly after that, they began. They were a restless clan, the Stanfords. They began to move what was then the frontier west, which may sound kind of amusing to. Uh, younger people today, or those of us who don't consider American history all that, that deeply, but that would have been Albany in those days. So they eventually moved all the way to the Albany area, which would have just been a real wilderness back in the early, or rather the uh, mid-1700s, late 1700s. And at that point, uh, his father owned a bar, a tavern called the Bull's Head. And they had a small farm adjacent to that. That's where Leland Stanford was born, in a bar in 24. Uh, he was part of a family of many children, and uh, they pretty much scratched out a living until this wonderful thing happened just before Leland was born, the Erie Canal, which went almost exactly right by the Bull's Head Tavern, and of course, brought commensurate riches, prosperity, so on and so forth. And then very shortly after the Erie Canal began to operate with great success, they brought in the first chartered and the second operating railroad in America, the Mohawk and Hudson, which brought even further riches to the area. Pretty soon, the Stanford family was doing pretty well. They got to move out of the Bull's Head Tavern and moved into a nice colonnade home uh, up the river a little bit away from the hustle and bustle of all the uh, stuff that was happening down there and what was the township of Waterfleet at the time, which is now part of Albany. Stanford, as a young man, failed at just about everything he did. His older brother, Josiah, reminisces in his uh, typewritten memoirs, which are in the Bancroft Library at UC Berkeley, that even as a young man, Leland shirked work. When there was work to be done, they'd look around, they couldn't find him. He'd be hiding, hiding behind a, a house or out in the trees or something like that. So he didn't do all that well. His parents got a little bit fed up with that. They decided, you know what? Uh, we're going to send you off to school and see that that'll work for you. But even then, he failed in his studies. He was either expelled or he dropped out of three successive schools before he was 18 years old. So he never had even the equivalent of today's high school diploma, which, of course, might strike some people as being terrifically ironic that he is the founder of one of the world's great universities. But there it is. Uh, so after he had failed all these schools, uh, he decided uh, he was either going to have to uh, stay at home and work on the farm, or he's going to have to make it his own way. And there was the next chapter of his life. 
I wish I could go on about it, if you wish. Well, you, I actually want to stop and, and, and point out uh, what you do in this book, which I thought was really interesting. Would you point out how you know, he has his success, successive failures and how, you know, for a lot of people, it, it, you know, you would think that this would mean that this was set the pattern for their life, that we're talking about a person of no particular note who doesn't really go on to do great things. And what I thought was interesting was how you find within that experience certain character traits that you think uh, are really key to his success later on. Thank you for pointing that out, because I, sometimes that, that might pass by a reader who's not as careful as you, Mark. And to that point, let me just bring up the uh, the first school that his parents sent them to. This would have been called the Oneida Academy. And at the Oneida Academy, they were not only going to teach you your letters and maybe some more arithmetic and so on and so forth, but they required of every student three hours of manual labor every day. The idea being is that body and mind would be strengthened at the Oneida Institute. But here was Stanford, who arrived one evening, finds out about this, and the next morning packs his bags and leaves. So here we have a guy who who even as a young man demonstrates that he is opportunistic, that he looks for his best advantage, that he, now, on the other hand, you might've found somebody who was even maybe more phlegmatic, which he was often accused of as he was a, an adult, who might say, well, that's the way it is, you know, gosh, I've had some bad luck, I guess I'll try it for a couple of weeks. But he said, heck no, I'm out of here. There's one other postscript to this, which I think is kind of important to remember about Leland Stanford because he became such an important political force in the West and to some large extent across the country. When he found out that the meals were served not only to the white kids at the school, but that African-Americans, blacks, would be seated at the same table with them. They had students as well. He didn't like that. He, although throughout his life was a, not throughout his life was a Republican, but throughout his life was anti-slavery, had a different and very 19th century American attitude about slavery. He was not anti he was not anti-slavery because he thought it was a morally bad thing. He was against the expansion of slavery because he thought it was bad business and denigrated white labor. So, yes, at that point, we see Stanford who mixes opportunism with, uh, with the inability to, uh, to really be able to set himself to work. He's discordant, but somehow uh, you know, black keys and white keys kind of melody that, that, raises, uh, that resonates out of him. So when his parents finally said, you know, you're on your own, he was very much on his own. And he began a, a three-year shift that ended up going to California. So I was wondering if you could perhaps take us through this shift, because it's not just a geographical shift that you described. It's also a career shift that he embarks upon one career. Uh, he's not terribly successful at it. He uh, you, he begins this lifelong involvement in politics that you described that I thought was really fascinating. And, and, and all that occurs before he sets out for California. What was going on there? And how does that ultimately lead him to, uh, you know, cross the continent to uh, to, to the, the West Coast? The first thing he 
said that he did, and he disappears for about three years after leaving the last school, uh, Casanova, which is up in upper state New York. He said he went back to Albany and that he apprenticed at a law firm. He said this throughout his life, and his acolytes, his eulogists, have repeated it over and over again, that he passed the New York bar and went into practice. In point of fact, this is probably Stanford's big first and very successful lie. There's absolutely no documentation whatsoever that backs this up at all. Now, it has to be said, to be an honest and fair historian about this, it is true that many records were either not kept very well from that period, many of them destroyed by flood, by fire, by neglect, so on and so forth. Yet I spent I can't tell you many, many months exhaustively looking to anything you could possibly find, including the uh, the papers of this law firm that he said that he had apprenticed at. Uh, and it, these papers were found eventually in the rare books room at the, um, at the SUNY uh, Buffalo Library. There's absolutely no mention of his employment ever there. There's no mention of his taking the bar. There's no mention of him passing the bar. But what he does do is he flees Albany, all his friends, all his family, everything he's ever known, and goes to a tiny little town in northern Wisconsin, uh, north of Milwaukee, a place called Port Washington. And there he does get a job with a law firm, not as a lawyer, but there he does apprentice for two years, and there he finally does pass the Wisconsin State Bar, sets up his law practice in tiny Port Washington, north of Milwaukee, as I mentioned, but that too fails. And finally, one uh, morning, three o'clock in the morning in late winter, a fire rips through the downtown area, destroys his office, destroys his law books, destroys his building, destroys his IOU, and there he is left once again at age 24 with nothing except he has a bunch of brothers who in 1849 came out here to California for the gold rush. And they say to him, Leland, look, everything you tried so far <laughs> is not working, but we have established a beachhead here. Why don't you come out and try to give it a go? So Stanford, Leland takes his uh, brothers up on their offer and he goes out to California. And as you point out, this was an aspect of the gold rush, this huge influx of people who go to California in uh, the late 1840s, early 1850s to find gold. And as you described, though, you know, Stanford is not going out there to find gold. What he does ends up, you know, making him very wealthy. And it has absolutely nothing to do with, you know, having to physically go out there and, you know, pan for the yellow dust. Correct. He comes out there because he's really got no place else to go. He can't go back to Albany. He's got nothing there. He's washed out in Wisconsin. But his brothers, who were pretty smart guys, most of them at least, uh, realized pretty early on that grubbing for gold was not nearly as dependable, safe, as pleasant, or as profitable as supplying the gold rush uh, uh, people coming from around the world. And I have to point out, this was the greatest history of Western migration in, in the Western Hemisphere of all time. So they established a store in Sacramento, which at that time would have been the large city in California, certainly the most important city in California, Stanford Brothers. And he came out there. He didn't have a dollar on him when he got out to Sacramento. So they said to him, look, Leland, we have a pretty good store going on here. Uh, let's try something different with you and see if you can manage this. Let's open up a little branch store for you up in the heart of the gold country, up in the Sierra Nevada. And uh, we'll, we'll throw some uh, goods at you and you can see if you can sell them. And if you can do a good job doing that, then let's see what happens. 
Now, this is a very important turn for Leland Stanford because he learned something very, very critical for the rest of his life, and it's a very simple matter for him. He gets up there, he opens up the store, and he's doing okay, but he realizes, because of his uh, provenance again, that the liquor business is uh, very much more profitable. So he opens up uh, a tavern, and he calls it uh, sort of a pay-on to his his New York roots, the Empire Saloon. So he starts a bar, the Empire Saloon. And at this point, the county supervisors, Classer County, also are looking for somebody to be a justice of the peace. So he pulls out his Wisconsin bar certificate, waves it around and says, look, I can do this, which would have put him in a very unusual situation because we're very few people with those kind of qualifications, even remotely. So they said, fine, you can be justice as the peace. And guess, Mark, where he ran the courtroom. Where did he run the courtroom? He ran his courtroom in the Empire Saloon. <laughs> so here's the guy who's dispensing frontier justice and liquor in the exact same place. And here is the lesson he learned, and one that becomes very significant shortly afterwards. He learned that conflating business and governmental power is a very powerful cocktail, one that you don't want to disregard if you can get away with it. Now, there are going to be people who are going to be listening here who are going to say, gee, this sounds familiar for our time. And for that point, I would simply say that Leland Stanford becomes a very critical prototype in American history. Beware those who do not pay attention to their history and the mistakes of the past so we don't repeat them. Regardless, he made a lot of money. His brothers got tired of selling dry goods down in Sacramento, went off to other enterprises. His older brother, Jeff Said, who I mentioned earlier, started the first petroleum company in California, went back down to San Francisco. Another brother returned home, uh, became a, a powerful influence in New York. Another brother went to Australia, didn't fare so well. But Leland had the Stanford store to himself. Big sign, Stanford Brothers. He's suddenly a, a merchant of some standing in downtown Sacramento. But there's more that befalls him, which is much, much more important and much more powerful. Yeah, I, was, I was about to say that, you know, adjust the peace certainly definitely has influence. But as you explain, you know, if you really want to have true power to uh, benefit yourself, you look at state office. And I, I thought that your description of his, the, of the, uh, of his political emergence is fascinating because it was not a sense of it was, you know, success upon success upon success. But it was a repeat of the earlier life where he, you know, failed, 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 and yet he kept trying. He kept trying. You know, that great American, uh, well, it's more than just a myth. We can throw it as a myth, but I think there's something to it. If you, if you can combine perseverance and purpose, your shot of making wherever you want to go increases very dramatically, right? That, that old adage, uh, it's funny, the harder I work, the luckier I seem to get. <laughs> So he is experiencing this 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 uh this rise, and you I like how you integrate it with what's going on in California more broadly, not just in terms of the gold rush, but you're also talking about how he is rising with the emergence of the Republican Party. Uh, he takes the benefit. He, he benefits from, in effect, being as you're pointing out. You know, he you know by being there at the right place at the right time, he benefits from the luck of what happens with the Democrats splitting. And he becomes governor. But before we get to that, I, I want to uh, take us back just a little bit because I feel like this is the point where we have to start talking about the railroads and hit how it is that he becomes involved with that. 
and with whom he starts to work with. This is a very critical point. We have to remember this era is at the, the beginning of the, the, the real serious uh, part about the Civil War. This, the country is being ripped apart over uh, this horrendous institution of slavery. And the gold coming into the national coffers is extraordinary. It bumps the, the global gold supply up very significantly. And the powers that be back in Washington, D.C. are extremely concerned that there are other world powers looking at California with the covetous eyes. Uh, of course, they had already kind of lost it to Mexico, but Mexico had already lost California, I should say, in the War of 1848. But the Russians are making a move, but that sounds familiar. And uh, the British are eyeing it, so on and so forth. We want to tie the United States together, and how best to do that in the middle of the 19th century, a transcontinental railroad. There is a growing call, a very loud call, to tie this country together. And please remember also, there's the question about a Mormon insurrection, because as they went to their Zion in Utah, they were talking about a separate sovereignty as well. So there's a huge amount of interest in trying to tie this country together with the railroad, but how the heck are you ever going to finance it? Well, the South wants a railroad as well, because they would like to export the number one export crop in the United States, King Cotton, out to Asian markets, and they want to build a railroad line through the southern desert. The North doesn't want that for obvious reasons, because it would give more power to the southern insurrection. How are you going to pay for this? Now, there are three guys in Sacramento, one guy named Charles Crocker who owns a carpet store. Uh, there are two other very wily gentlemen named Collis Huntington and Mark Hopkins. They own a hardware store. Uh, they're partners in downtown Sacramento. And they are beginning to see, you know, this is not only going to be good for California, but there might be something good in this for us. We got to get into this political game here and see somehow if we can get some cards on the table here. All we need is a fourth guy to be in political office, guess who just moved into the hardware store next door at that Stanford Brothers. He's 5'11", he's a big stalwart kind of a guy, he's kind of, uh, doesn't talk an awful lot, so he shouldn't make a whole lot of silly mistakes on the stump. He has clear and political ambitions. He ran unsuccessfully for district attorney back in Wisconsin. Let's bring him into the fold here and see what we can do. Of course, that was Leland Stanford. You describe how you, it, it takes a few tries for Leland Stanford to attain a position. Of course, when he does, it's the governorship. But you also describe as well that how there's this parallel issue about the railroad. You did mention that the route uh, that was being proposed by Southerners that would uh, have a terminus uh, in, in perhaps Southern California, and how you describe as well how as uh, these four men are coming together and pushing for the railroad, they're specifically pushing for a northern route and how that gets established as well. And, and that was a point that I hadn't really you know, yet considered, which was how the, this notion of how daunting those mountains would be and how they would lend itself to this argument that you know it should be in the South, where you don't have the Rockies quite so prominent, but you instead have this engineer who just shows up, who has this uh, you know, who, who, who scouted a route and how quickly, you know, he, he and the four come together and pretty soon you have that, that, that genesis for, uh, that, uh, for the, uh, you know, what becomes the first major transcontinental route. Remember that the first Republican president of the United States was a railroad lawyer. 
He was a one-term congressman out of Illinois. His name was Abraham Lincoln. Mm -hmm. And Abe was very much in favor of this transcontinental railroad. But yes, as you so accurately point out, Mark, the issue about a northern route, the word that keeps coming to mind is insurmountable. How the heck are you going to get over the very high peaks of the Sierra Nevada? All the engineers said it was impossible. Then comes along a young, and I have to say, rather naive engineer named Theodore Judah, who was brought up to California by another would-be railroad entrepreneur. Judah goes up into the Sierra Nevada with trackers and with vocal people, and he does something that nobody else has ever been able to do. He finds a possible route across the Nevada that would have done Sierra Nevada that would have brought the trains right into Sacramento and then down to San Francisco. So he thinks this is a great idea, which it clearly was. He goes to San Francisco and he says, uh, I'm going to have a meeting with a bunch of today venture capitalists, people with a lot of money, they're flush from the gold rush and says, I have this tremendous plan here. And they all agree it's tremendous, but there's a problem. They don't see a payoff for another 10 20 years when they can be getting three, five, maybe more percentage on their investments next week, next month, next year. And they say, gosh, we would love to be able to help you out, but it's just not a really good investment for us. You're going to have to rely on somebody with a much bigger pocketbook who's less profit-oriented like the United States government. And there are bills in Congress to fund this railroad. So Judah gets fed up. He says, okay, well, you guys are very short-sighted. I'm going to go up to Sacramento, the biggest town in California at the time, and I'm going to meet with some capitalists up there, and they will see the wisdom of this investment. Unfortunately, when he gets back up to Sacramento and he presents this to a group of financiers, they have the same reaction, except there is one guy in the back of the room who doesn't say anything. He's just standing, uh, standing room only in the back, listening quietly with his heart crossed. And he waits for everybody to go by and shake uh, Theodore Judas' hands and say, nice job, young man. I wish you much success. The room clears out. And uh, this fellow walks up to um, Theodore Judah and says, hi, my name is Collis Huntington. I have three partners who would love to meet you. Would you like to take a meeting with us tomorrow evening up in our offices? It's just down the street. And Jude, of course, says, sure. <laughs> to. So the next night, he goes down there and he meets Crocker. Uh, he meets Hopkins. And he meets Stanford. And he lays out his plan. And they say, well, that's all well and good. But how are we going to get the federal money for this? And Theodore Judah naive as he might be, had spent a good deal of time in Washington already kind of bouncing around with these ideas. And he says, well, I know a ton of people over there. And they said, okay, we'll make you a deal. We'll make you a director of the railroad. We'll name you the chief engineer. We'll create the Central Pacific Railroad Company, and we'll send you back to Washington, and let's see what you can do about drumming up some money for this plan. They send him back there, and Judah, and this is the most remarkable part of this, this part of the story, he becomes the staff for the House Committee on Railroads, and he becomes the staff for the Senate Committee on Railroads. And guess who writes the bill that gives the franchise to the Central Pacific Railroad? Theodore <laughs> Judah. The war is upon him. They rush the bills through. It goes to railroad attorney, President Abraham Lincoln. He signs it in 1862, and suddenly these four little shopkeepers who wouldn't know a train trestle from a, from a railroad spike are suddenly 
in charge of building the western end of the Transcontinental Railroad. It's an astonishing story. What was Leland Stanford's part in it at this point? You describe what he's doing uh, professionally. You describe what he's doing business-wise. But you also describe what's happening politically. How is he facilitating uh, the development, and what is he contributing to the partnership at this point? So we have Crocker is going to be the road boss of the engineer. He's the, of the, the road crews. He's going to go out there and make sure that the rails are laid down. We have Hopkins, who's the quiet, studious book guy. He's going to be the accountant. We have Huntington, who's already proven himself time and time again, as well as in that meeting with Judah, as the sharp trader, the guy who sees opportunities and uh, knows how to buy and sell stuff. Stanford is going to be the guy they're going to put up as their front man. They're going to have him run for office. They ran him for office four times for state treasurer, secretary of state, for lieutenant governor, finally for governor. And they're going to put him, they're doing their best to put him in a position of power so he can not only lobby Washington for more money, but when he comes back to California, he can do the same thing, which is immediately what he does. Because now he has been appointed at this, at this uh, juncture president of the Central Pacific Railroad, which will one day become the Southern Pacific Railroad, but it's still at this point the Central Pacific Railroad. As president of the railroad, he has now elected governor because they split the ticket between the Whigs, among the Whigs, the Democrats, and the Republicans. So although he didn't get anywhere close to a majority of the votes, he got the single highest number in those votes. So at age 37, he becomes governor of California, while at the exact same time, just weeks before, had become president of the Central Pacific Railroad. And his job is to go into the state legislature, and this is a word that was used by another Republican governor who was in the legislature at the time, bully them into passing still more bond money, which of course is just another way to tax people, more bond money, statewide bond money, to give me more money for this private enterprise. And then Governor Stanford goes to the various counties. I've mentioned Placer County earlier. He goes to Placer and he says, we need you to float some more bond money, taxes on your residents here for this railroad. And they said, well, wait a minute, you already have all the federal money and now you have all the state money. Why should we do that? And he says, I'll tell you what, if you don't want to contribute, that's totally fine. We'll just build a railroad around you, which is a very... <laughs> successful tactic because of course they want the railroad for every reason it's obvious so they passed the bond measure so he goes from county to county from city to city and this becomes a very successful formula this was leland stanford's job and he did it very very well this mark is where he finds himself this is where he leaves behind that feckless young man who failed at almost everything he had attempted and finds his true metier, his, his true calling in life, and they begin to build the Central Pacific Railroad, a private company with what today would be billions of dollars of taxpayer money. I, I think you make that point very nicely in your book when you point out how for the rest of his life, he preferred the title of governor as an honorific, even though he could be called president based upon his uh, presidency of Central Pacific or later on as he could be called senator. But the fact that he had that he preferred to be called governor, I think, really speaks to what he was most proud of in terms of all of these titles and accomplishments he accrued over the course of his life. 
very true. It's a title that he not only enjoyed, but he insisted upon. As a matter of fact, later on, when uh, if we get around to talking about the probably the single greatest scandal in his life, although there were many of them, the federal investigation about what happened to those billions of dollars, he seemed to have totally forgotten that he was, at that time, a United States senator. He remembered he had been a justice of the peace where he ran that bar uh, in his courtroom in the same place, and he remembered that everybody always called him governor, uh, but that was pretty much as far as he got. This was a the major turning point, not only for him and not only for California, but for the West and for the United States, because without that, the Transcontinental Railroad would not have been constructed in the manner that it was. And it changed everything. So uh, his term as uh, governor, it, it, we, should, we should make clear, it was well, not a terribly long way. At this time, governor served only two-year terms. Uh, does Stanford leave the office voluntarily, or is he defeated for re-election, and what does he do immediately afterward? He wanted to run for a second term, and the second term, they had just changed the state constitution to make them four-year terms. So his second term would have been far more influential, far more powerful. But at this point, uh, Stanford just thought, well, you know, he fell back on his sort of lazy character here again, which he does time and time again. I'm the governor. Everybody's going to just vote for me. It didn't turn out that way. In politics, the bare-knuckled sport that it is, they came after him, and he pretty much lost the nomination to be able to uh, get a second term, which totally shocked him But he, because he wasn't on his toes. He wasn't paying attention. So he went back to uh, being the president of the uh, railroad exclusively. But I have to tell you, throughout his term there as governor, he made it very clear in his public pronouncements that he thought being the president of the railroad was much more important than being governor of California. So he was pretty happy about that, and he went back to that. And he was accruing a huge fortune by being the president of the railroad because the first thing they did with all this money that they were getting from the federal government and from the state government and from the county taxpayers and <laughs> city taxpayers, the first thing that he did is he went and bought and then built on top of the most spectacular, ostentatious mansion you could possibly imagine in Sacramento, displaying where his real tastes were. The mansion exists to this day. As a matter of fact, it's a state historic monument. You can tour it. But that's what he wanted to do, and that's what he was very happy doing for the next many years. He is this long-term president of the Central Pacific, and he is part of his partnership. And yet, for me, one of the most fascinating parts of the book was your description of just how uh, tense so many of those relationships were. I was wondering if you could perhaps explain how those relations evolve as the Transcontinental Railroad is completed and as the Central Pacific becomes this enormous powerhouse in railroad, uh, in, in the economics, and also in the politics of California. If I might cite some uh, early Bob Dylan just to start that off, nothing can talk, it swears. And in this particular case, it was quite profane. Yes, the money coming in started to rip this alliance of the four asunder. And it was primarily Huntington, that sharp trader who was increasingly burnt by Stanford, who he probably, although he never said it out loud, but if you read uh, the correspondence, which I have read 
hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of his letters. He was clearly irked that here was this guy who he just thought was a near do well, and they were just going to put up as a front man, had actually emerged not only as a player, but as a very powerful one, and had not only uh, just taken the office of Central Pacific and uh, president and as governor uh, as titles, but actually exploited them too much to his benefit. Huntington was increasingly resentful of Stanford for all those reasons. And yes, they started to tear themselves apart over that. Uh, the correspondence uh, that he was sending to Stanford is incredibly bitter uh, as they neared completion of the railroad, which of course is where they joined together with the Union Pacific coming from the Midwest at Promontory Summit in the high deserts of northern Utah. So they're they're having this infighting, and it's increasingly bitter. How is it that Huntington's not simply able to squeeze Stanford out? Because given that he really does seem to uh, be in, so involved in a lot of the day to day operation, he has a lot of those connections. Why why can't he just basically make it the big three? Two things. Stanford is in California with Hopkins. Uh, Crocker's out on the road uh, within his gangs, and we should talk about who actually built the railroad as well, if we might. We'll get that in just a few minutes. Huntington is back east, being the traitor that he is. Uh, traitor, T-R-A-I-T-O-R. Not, <laughs> I mean, not that sort. Not that kind of traitor. That uh, with a D. He's buying and he's selling steel, but he's also turning into the chief lobbyist to get more and more and more subventions from the federal government. He becomes very good at this, uh, as his biographer Lavender pointed out. It really awakened something, uh, a creative genius in him that maybe was uh, very difficult to see before that time. So he's 2,500, 3,000 miles away from the action. But the other issue is about these other two. Crocker and Hopkins had their doubts about Stanford, but they could clearly see that with his uh, tasks that were appointed to him, he was having a good deal of success. They didn't want to rock that boat. So Huntington had to bite his time until Crocker and Hopkins either changed their minds or passed out of the picture. And that's pretty much what happened eventually. Do you mind if we bring up the question about who yes. who, who actually constructed the railroad? Is this an appropriate time to discuss I, I, that? Was, I was about to ask you, so who did build the railroad in the end? Well, at first they had an awful lot of uh, of guys who came who were Civil War veterans and were looking for work. Uh, the Civil War ended, of course, in 65. The completion of the railroad didn't take place until 1869. But there was a problem with these guys. A lot of them were of Irish ancestry who were a pariah immigrant back east and not so much in California. But a lot of these guys had the gold fever as well. And there were still gold strikes taking place here and there whenever they would hear about a gold strike, whether it be in northern California, whether it be in Montana, whether it be even further distant, they would abandon the railroad job, which was a really tough job and didn't pay all that well. So now Crocker, the road boss of this thing, uh, was faced with a real labor shortage. And he was going to need, Mark, 10, 12,000 tough laboring men to get out there and build this railroad. Remember, this is all done by hand, right, with hammers and picks and shovels and uh, mules and carts and stuff like that. So they put an ad in the Sacramento Union, which was the big newspaper at the time, uh, we need thousands of people for permanent, immediate, good-paying work. And only a handful of uh, people of European ancestry showed up. But another handful of immigrants who, because they came from around the world, 
from China also showed up for the jobs. And they were eager to get to work. The problem was Stanford, Crocker in particular, were just out-and-out racists, and they were anti-Chinese. They thought that uh, these were bad people. As a matter of fact, I could read to you uh, a little bit from the book here. Uh, His inaugural address for Leland Stanford calls the Chinese the dregs of society who washing up upon our shores and were denigrating a superior race, but they had their backs against the wall. So they said, well, let's try some of these guys from Asia and see if they're any good. And in point of fact, they were far superior than any of the white workers that they had. They didn't drink. They worked their butts off. They worked for less. They provided their own food. They showed up on time. They didn't run off to other gold strikes. And before this railroad was completed, William Stanford was the employer of 10 12, there are some estimates up to 20,000 Chinese workers who were really the John Henrys of the railroad enterprise. And the fact that you were quoting his inaugural address gets to uh, an important point to stress here, which I thought was very interesting, which was that it's not just that Leland Stanford was a was was anti-Chinese. It's that he was very publicly anti-Chinese. It was part of his political identity. It was he wasn't just, you know, railroads, railroads, railroads. He had these uh, this these this position about racial uh about you know, racial superiority that was part of his political identity. And yet you describe how, but when it came down to, you know, getting the job done, the dollars and the sense of it, he, you know, ended up putting that aside because this was practical without keep it to, it's important to, that you stress ever really abandoning or changing his ideas in any way or his, or his advocacy in any way. Absolutely not. No. He ran on a platform of being anti-immigrant, that there were these people who looked a little bit different, who spoke a different language, who had a different culture, who were coming into the United States and taking great jobs away from white Americans. If this sounds at all familiar to your (laughs) listeners, I will let them. I'll let them draw the line between the colored balloons themselves. And yes, at the same time, if he could exploit them economically, he didn't have any country clubs where he employed them, but he employed tens of thousands of them for his own profit on the railroad. So, yes, uh, these are historical parallels that repeat themselves, obviously, in American history. And for those of us who might pay some attention to this about conflating your personal business interests with government power, with uh, that were given to you by the citizens' country to take care of the government, not to take care of yourself, and again about the racism and the hypocrisy of it. If we keep making the same mistakes, so we're not being able to see the parallels there, we do it at our peril. So the railroad is is uh, completed in 1869, and at this point, uh, 69. I'm, I'm sorry, 1869. Uh, yeah, 1869. And at this point, you, you, there you have the big four. They're this dominant force. What was Leland Stanford's life like during these years, the 1870s, the 1880s? At this point, he's not the coming man. He has come. What, what, what was he doing and, and how was he living his life at this point? Very ostentatiously, he lived a life of great luxury, much like a Maharaj in India, like any grand titan. He had not only his sacramental mansion, but he soon, uh, his appetite outgrew that. So he came down to San Francisco. They moved the headquarters of the railroad down to the city. 
And there was a little bald hill sort of in the north central part of town that he thought that'd be a really nice place to build a house. He built this astonishingly huge mansion on this place called Nod Hill, which, of course, is one of the most famous addresses now uh, in the United States for ostentatious living. And that wasn't enough for him. He had done one of his grand tours of Europe with his wife, Jenny. Uh, and had learned that the very rich, uh, the aristocracy of Europe, liked to invest some of their money in vineyards. Again, very much a, a, a parallels to what we see with today's fortunes in the Silicon Valley. So he started to put together um, a winery in Northern California, which soon became the largest vineyard in the world, a place called Vina, V-I-N-A. Uh, there, there's a bit of it still left up there today, although the Stanford has nothing to do with it. But that wasn't enough for him. He wanted also a country estate. Now, San Francisco, for those of you who may know San Francisco weather, it's not the best in the world. It's often shrouded in fog and it's windy. Uh, it's kind of a cold place. But if you leave the city uh, 10 minutes to the south or to the east, there's a, a surfeit of California sunshine. He found a little place about 30 miles south of San Francisco down in what today is the heart of the Silicon Valley, uh, a little town called Mayfield, 30 miles south of the city. But the problem with Mayfield was that it was a saloon town. It had something like 20 or maybe more saloons going on. They had a very infamous brewery there. So he says, gosh, that's, that's not going to work for me. Um, I'm going to buy all this land just to the north side of Mayfield, and I'm going to name it after kind of a famous tree there, Palo Alto. So he put together uh, parcels down there of 8,000 plus acres for his for his country estate in Palo Alto. And at the meantime, he was traveling to European Jenny left and right and spending tons of money acquiring art to fill up all these rooms that he has in all these different places. And something else very important happens uh, towards the end of the railroad enterprise at the beginning of this era. After 18 years of barren marriage, Jenny is pregnant. They're excited as can be. You can just imagine have a child, and it turns out they have a son, and they name him Leland Stanford Jr., and he is, understandably, the center of their lives. Leland Sr. decides, uh, this is going to be a great heir, not only to my name, but to my fortune, and he will inherit the reins of this company. We're going to groom him as such, and we're going to educate him in such ways uh, that he will be uh, in the most appropriate position possible. He was very, very, very important. He was singularly important in their lives. And he seems like he was a, a, a very precocious and gifted child. He, you described how he spoke multiple languages. Uh, he was definitely spoiled, but he did seem to have considerable promise. And yet you have this uh, tragedy that ends up having this enormous ripple effect down to the present day. Absolutely. There's no question. The kid who was not only precocious, but by all accounts, uh, uh, just a really sweet, smart, great kid. And understandably, uh, someone that they were very, very proud of. They expected to have him enrolled at Harvard when he turned 16, which was not unusual at that time. But before they were going to leave him off in Cambridge, they were going to take another grand tour of Europe, which they did. Uh, part of the tour went to Constantinople, uh, the Istanbul of today, where he probably contacted, uh, contracted uh, typhus. And he died shortly afterwards in a luxurious hotel in Florence. It was the central tragedy of their lives, particularly for Leland Stanford Sr. Everything was rested on that. 
they needed to be able to come to terms with his death. And in order to do so, they decided they would build um, as a tribute to him and the fact that he was going to go off to the university just a couple of months later, a university named after him, Leland Stanford Junior University. And where better to put it than on this 8,000 acre estate in Palo Alto. And that was the beginning of Stanford University, which Leland Stanford initially envisioned. And in fact, I won't say even initially, but throughout his life, the remainder of his life, saw it very much as a trade school. He didn't see it as a great liberal arts university, uh, probably in large measure because he had so little formal education himself. And of course, Jenny, his wife, had even less so. And uh, he saw that the future was going to be with technology. And so this is pretty much the focus that the university he envisioned. And this is the way it plays out when we get back to uh, the antecedents of the Silicon Valley. Uh, so during these final years, he's uh, devoted himself to developing this, this university, Stanford University. What else is he doing with his life? What else he's doing with a life is to do with the railroad, and that is turning this enterprise into a massive monopoly. They've constructed their end of the Transcontinental Railroad. They've brought it down into California. They've brought it down to the San Francisco Bay Area. But there are rival lines. So the first thing that they do, and this is a, in an era when the word regulation was considered to be literally a word communistic, so they went out and started buying all the rival lines, and they started playing the same uh, stuff that he did with Placer County and with Sacramento and with the state all the way down to Los Angeles. You're either going to pony up with acres and acres and acres of land and millions and millions and millions in 19th century dollars of dollars, uh, or we're going to build a railroad station around you. And they created railroad towns uh, for Californians listening. You'll know towns like Monterey or Davis or down in Southern California, Colton, were built by the railroad. But he used this uh, to get all the way to Los Angeles and across Los Angeles. And at the end, they had a complete and total monopoly on all the rail lines. Anybody who used to plan, I don't know if anybody still plays Monopoly, but you remember owning the four railroads and the Monopoly board made you very, very rich. That's what it comes from. It was from Leland Stanford's railroad. And there are two principal rivers in California. Of course, it's, this is uh, anything this side of the Continental Divide tends to be much more arid than the other side of the country. But there are two principal rivers, the San Joaquin and the Sacramento. He bought all the ferry lines. On those, on those waterways. And in San Francisco Bay, they completely had a chokehold, the whip hand over California and all its transportation needs. This was his primary professional enterprise in these years. You also described how he, uh, can, uh, through their influence in the California legislature, he gets elected to the United States Senate, which at the time, uh, California leg uh, leg state legislature is the one who chose the senators. So he also has this very national profile. He's he's right up there with the biggest names in, in politics. People like Aldridge, people like Vanderbilt. His, his Leland Stanford has has the same profile. You know, he had the same profile in a lot of ways. I think um, perhaps in large measure because East Coast media is so dominant still, puzzlingly so, uh, in our history and our letters. He was arguably a much more influential and a much more powerful and a much more, shall we say, dangerous force in American history, because without Leland Stanford 
Carnegie, for example, would not have had the opportunity to make his fortune in steel. So much of it, the majority of his fortune came from supplying the railroads, the rails, the cars, the locomotives. Uh, there would have been a far uh, more difficult road to hoe uh, for, uh, for Rockefeller because his standard oil would have had no way to be able to transport their fuel without those railroads. And he employed tens of thousands of people compared to their uh, situations. And, and this railroad company not only uh, was so important in that way, but it really kind of set the, the, uh, the, the modern management uh, templates for today's corporations. It had everything to do with creating uh, universal time zones, which is a story which I won't uh, go into too much here, but uh, we deal with uh, in a fairly brisk, but I think complete way. The book, he was an enormously powerful guy at the time, and you could not have ignored it. There's nobody in the United States who wouldn't have known of Leland Stanford in the late 19th century America. One of the things that you do that I, I liked is you talk about how he is this figure of enormous power and influence, and how he also exemplifies a lot of the a lot of the expectations of powerful people. You describe it particularly in terms of his size, how he's this very large individual, and, and how is that? And, and and of course that ends up playing a role in his death as well. You, you're talking about a person who is not a is not a fitness freak. <laughs> he's a person who who, who lives large. <laughs> And, and and who yeah. uh, ends up uh, uh, passing away. Uh, uh, not he, he does pass away at a, at a relatively young age, but at the same time, he's definitely you know suffers from the ailments of his high living. He does. He's not a healthy guy, and the stresses brought upon him by what's happening in his professional life cannot be much more pleasant uh, than uh, much more un unpleasant than it, than they were for Leland Stanford. The state government becomes quite alarmed at the power that he has. They try to create some regulation, but Stanford simply buys off his regulators by giving them millions of dollars, uh, giving them tons of land and all sorts of stuff. So the state regulators completely fail. At the same time, he's telling the federal government, you know, I know we signed papers to pay back in 30 years with a certain amount of low interest, but, you know, you should be very grateful to us. We built a railroad and we shouldn't have to pay you back. So the American taxpayers looked like they were going to get dealt for billions of dollars. It was going to break the contract. Congress finally reacts and says, let's do an investigation and find out what happened to this money. So a very comprehensive probe was launched by the United States Congress and went on for a year. And in the course of that, the single most, I would argue, the single most of many scandalous episodes through his life becomes apparent. When they brought him before the commission in San Francisco and they said, uh, President, uh, Railroad, uh, Governor, Senator, Mr. Powerful, Leland Stanford, could we please see what happened to all the money that we loaned you? Would you bring out the books? And Stanford's response was, uh, uh, the, the books? What, what, what books are you referring to? Well, the accounting books. We'd like to see the accounting books. Oh, well, that was Mr. Hopkins' uh, department, and um, I don't really know anything about the books. Well, where's Mr. Hopkins? Oh, so sad. Mr. Hopkins is dead. <laughs> Mr. Hopkins, how about his deputy? Is his deputy? Oh, that's that's unfortunate, but all those people who had anything to do with their debt. Well, certainly you as the president of the railroad must have access to the books. 
I don't know whether I've ever even looked at the books as the president of the railroad. This goes on and on and on. So finally, here's the great revelation on this one. The books have been destroyed. Somebody took all the accounting books that would have led to a clear conclusion about what they did with the money and destroyed them, probably burned them. And what in point of fact became clear later on is that Leland Stanford and company, he created three dummy companies to launder that money away from the railroad and into their pockets. When they pressed them and pressed them and pressed them on this, and he began to say, you know, this is all fake news. I'm not going to answer your stupid questions. I'm not going to testify. My people aren't going to testify. They took him to court. They took him to a very high federal court, uh, and it, uh, one that had three judges on it two of whom were there because of Leland Stanford's appointments. So you can imagine what the ruling was in favor of Leland Stanford, that he would not have to testify. So he got away with that. But at this point, not only Hopkins is dead, but Crocker has died. So this rivalry with Stanford and Huntington that you brought up earlier today is at a boil. And Stanford is very vulnerable, not only because of the ill health that you so properly point out and the huge stresses that he's under, and because of the many failures that he has been encountering and trying to deal with building the university, managing the railroad, uh, being a United States senator, so on and so forth. He's not handling any of this very well. That's when Huntington makes his move. So he, he makes his move and Stanford is out. And he dies soon after. And in most biographies, this would be the end of the story. But you then continue forward to develop two aspects of it. One is you point out how the finances that that Stanford's you know lack of knowledge was not a, a it was not an affectation or or pose for the investigators. <laughs> you, you could demonstrate that he really was uh, very much at sea for with, with his finances. And you describe as well his how his wife has to cope with all this because she outlives him. She has is is a woman who's who carries on this legacy of Stanford University, but she does so it, it with you know, having to navigate this incredibly messed up situation that her husband has left her. With a tragic end, absolutely. So her husband, yes. Uh, not only was living ostentatiously in the money that he was accruing through these laundered companies uh, with the federal taxpayer money, but he was completely ignorant about what he owed and what he didn't owe. And when he died in, in um, 1893 at age 69 in his sleep, presumably they found him in, uh, dead in his bed around midnight on the first night of summer, they found that he, uh, if he was going to pay back the federal government, pay back the United States taxpayers, his estate was essentially bankrupt. They didn't have enough money to pay the heating bill at this new university that had just opened. And he dropped all this in the lap of his widow, Jenny, who was completely unequipped to deal with this kind of thing. A classic 19th century American wife expected to walk three steps behind her husband, just be dazzled by the many uh, incredible ostentatious jewels that she had got uh, from Leland, some of which came from the Empress Josephine and so on and so forth, uh, the estate of Empress Josephine, I should quickly say. Uh, and suddenly she was tasked not only with being able to save this university, which was on the brink of shutting down, but then the federal government, the United States government, put a lawsuit against 
the Stanford estate said, we want our money back now. It went all the way to the Supreme Court. We're lucky for her. She had great attorneys. The Justice Department did not. Lucky for her that she was friends with the President of the United States, who leaned on his attorney general. Lucky for her that one of the most important influential voices on the Supreme Court was there because Leland Stanford had him appointed to that bench. And lucky for her, she won the suit. So she was fine. She got her $15 million from the railroad that uh, was the, represented the quarter interest that he had among the big four of the ownership there. And she went about saving that university. And when she finally got done with that, and she finally was able to say, and this is many years later, several years later, she used to say, I have saved the university, see of my man, the memorial to my dead son. I think I can start to travel again. Something very wrong took place. I was wondering if you could elaborate upon that because it really gets to a, you know, it really provides a very dramatic uh, end for your book. And it also, I think, gets to, it underscores just how troubled this this early history of Stanford University was and how David Starr Jordan, its, its president, seemed to be as much as a uh, as much of a fireman as as a university administrator in terms of constantly having to deal with these crises that seem to break out every so often. There were tremendous crises, academic freedom, uh, uh, scandals uh, the, in the university have to do with Jenny not wanting to have any girls on the campus because it was a memorial to her son. And when some were allowed, some like goodness, can you believe this? Undergraduates were having sex. Oh, my God. It was the end of the world there. But there were serious scandals that took place there as well. And David Starr Jordan, yes, sort of the fabled first president of the university, did a great deal to help save the university. Maybe one of the greatest things that really saved the university was by a student, a former student at Stanford University, a, a gentleman named George Crothers, who was said to resemble very much uh, her her dad's son that she became very close to, who managed to get a, const, a state constitutional exemption forever for Stanford University to never have to pay property tax. I, I, there's no way you can account for the billions of dollars that would have resulted back to California taxpayers. But she got that all settled. And then one evening when she was up in her Knob Hill mansion, uh, she had she was not a healthy woman either. And she decided that she needed to have a, a, a bromide. She had some medicine, some, some water with some medicine in it. But it turned out she spat the water out and said, I need to get this analyzed. This just doesn't taste right. It was strychnine in the water. Somebody had tried to poison her. And this would have been the next huge crisis for Stanford University. So her counselors, her friends, her attorneys, and probably David Starr Jordan said to her, you need to get out of town. Somebody's trying to murder you for whatever reason. We're going to hire private detectives, try to figure out what this is. But why don't you take a nice ocean cruise and go to I don't know. How about Honolulu? So she gets on an ocean cruise, or not a cruise the way that we think of them today, just a very expensive first cabin berth on a luxury boat that went off to Hawaii and went to get away from whoever was trying to murder her. And yet that doesn't really succeed. And so she, as you described, she it's something happens. And unfortunately, when you have this tragic death that takes place this 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 probable murder how the focus is not upon figuring out who did it and why but upon ensuring that this doesn't drag down uh her her family's legacy with her 
She's in Hawaii. She has a very pleasant afternoon for people. She goes out to the Pali Lookout. She comes back to this lovely hotel, which is still there, the Moana on Waikiki Beach. And she has a, a light dinner. She goes to bed kind of early. About two hours later, after she goes to bed, they suddenly hear screaming in the hallway. She's in the door jam of her hotel room yelling, I've been poisoned. Two hours later, she's dead. Somebody had put pharmaceutical strychnine in her water again, and she was dead. A very in-depth coroner's inquest with some of the most noted physicians of the time, private detectives, local police, chemists, a, a whole horde of really highly qualified people unanimously and emphatically came to the conclusion that she was murdered. Now, this is going to be another huge crisis for the university. David Starr Jordan finds out about this by telegram. He immediately sails for Hawaii and embarks on one of the most successful cover-ups of any murder investigation. And as you put it, Mark, he completely does the opposite. Instead of trying to find the murderers, does a very successful job of obfuscating every possible lead that he possibly could. And to this day, we do not know who murdered Jenny Stanford because of this very successful cover-up by David Starr Jordan. Now, let me just anticipate your next question, and certainly one that I think the audience might have at this point. Does that implicate him? It does not. There is no reason to believe that he had anything to do with it. His motive is to make sure that the university survives and not to have another scandal. To this day, we don't have a motive. We don't have a suspect. We don't have any kind of clarity about who murdered Jenny Stanford. I was thinking to tie it back to what you're saying at the beginning of our interview is how it really does also set a very high bar for the Stanford publicity department even today. <laughs> I, wish, I, I wish I could have said it was such droll wisdom. Uh, good point. <laughs> Thanks. So we've taken a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? A little bit. Uh, I have a new book that I'm well into now. It also will be about uh, centered on California and um, Western America, but that's really just going to be the main venue. It's really a national story that takes place in the early part of this century. Uh, my working title right now is Rum Roulette and the Righteous. I'm not going to tell you much more about it than that, but uh, I'll be working on that for the next <laughs> many years, no doubt. I'm very excited about it, and I think it's going to be uh, I think it's going to be a barn burner. Well, hopefully, uh, when uh, you complete it, we can have you back on the New Books Network to talk about it in another podcast. I would very much look forward to that. Well, Roland, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. The best to you, Mark. Thank you so much for this, and uh, I can't thank you enough for the time. <laughs>